0: This week on the show, we have FreeBSD Quanta 4 2018 status report for you, the GhostBSD alternative, the coolest 90s laptop, OpenSSH 8.0 with quantum computing resistant key exchange, as well as Project Trident update 8 in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now episode two hundred ninety-two, Asia BSDCon twenty nineteen recap, recorded on the third of April two thousand nineteen. Hello, I'm your host Benedict Reuschling, and I'm Alan Jude. And wow, we're back from our Asia BSDCon conference uh, expedition. I would say, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a long time. I was there ten days at least. So this is our headlines for this week as well. So we covered a little bit about the conference, and.
1: So yeah, you were there for 12 days? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit days. earlier than I was. Yeah, Yeah, you there arrived a day or two before you and
0: left the day after you. Mhm. Yeah, so you had much more Tokyo, but the 10 days are already good to so get mm-hmm. off jet lag and uh, spend a bit of time exploring the city before it goes into the actual conference.
1: Yes, I was actually, you know, sleeping through the night and not feeling tired at the conference. It was it was very refreshing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, So, um, and we saw a lot of people there. Some Mm -hmm. people I saw from my uh, tutorials last year, so apparently I did something good. Otherwise, they wouldn't come back. And so, yeah, um, the reason I was at the conference, one of many reasons is that I gave my tutorial, uh, BSD-based systems monitoring with Isinga 2 and OpenSSH, uh, which I never gave before. So this is a first, and there will be similar talks at other conferences. Uh, for example bSD can but this was basically the premiere and see how it goes and how many people uh, are interested in that and what kind of feedback I got from that so that was a good start and that was on the first day of the, the tutorial track and in parallel to that there was the uh, free BSD dev summit
1: yep uh, and then on the next day we had uh, more dev summit uh, and more tutorials uh, and I I missed the morning of the Dev Summit on the second day uh, for other stuff. But then in the afternoon, I actually got to sit with uh, some new people I met and uh, share some war stories and so on. And it was uh, a lot of fun and getting to know more people and understand what other people are doing with BSD, uh, which was, you know, half the point of this. Yeah,
0: especially people from the region who wouldn't normally go to the other BSD conferences so that was a good uh, way of seeing what they are doing or how they are using the BSDs and um, on that morning uh, I kind of um, spontaneously decided to attend Christoph Provost's uh, writing network tests for free BSD tutorials so I gave the front desk a little bit of money and then I joined the tutorial which actually wasn't that um, bad attended um, the few people who were I mean he had more uh, attendees than I had And uh, Christoph did a good job of explaining, you know, how to write uh, tests for CUA, and, you know, how the test framework works and where do you actually have to put the files so that the framework can pick them up and then um, run them over the the code that you've written. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and I took notes and probably will put this into an article in uh, these days when I have more time, whenever that will be. But
1: definitely a good everyone who goes to any conference to send a trip report uh, to us here at bsd now you know post it on your blog or something and send us the link and that way it's open for everyone Uh, but you know it's what i found one of the most the easiest ways to encourage people to go to the conference is explain how you experienced the conference from your perspective and what you gained out of it and what you liked about it so on and that will help them uh, understand that you know, you don't have to understand all of this stuff to go to the conference. The point is to go and pick up a little bit of it, and then you'll understand that much more next time, and the next time, and the next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the getting to meet to people, talk to people, just hear uh, fun stories. You know, I think one of my favorite experiences from a VBSD con was um, sitting around a table and hearing uh, George Neville Neal and John Baldwin tell stories of. Uh, the company they were working for during, I think it was the the hurricane that hit New York a couple of years ago. Mm. And they were like oh, yeah. sneaking into the office with backpacks and grabbing like all the IP phones and stuff that they could <laughs> uh, to then take them and set up a, a temporary office somewhere else that wasn't going to get flooded uh, so that they could keep online and so on. Uh, Ooh. And just stuff like that. And it was just like these are just fun stories. Uh, I mean, you get to <laughs> yeah. know the people and understand their personality and, and know what they've done and stuff. And it just, I don't know, it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm, <laughs> for I'm, sure. a, I'm a super geek. I just love talking about the, the you know, shop talk type stuff. It uh, just tickles me in the right way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there a lot of people can, you know, relate to these stories and have
0: some of them uh, well, their own.
1: <clears throat> it's funny. Uh, in the chat room before the show, we were talking about it, uh, about my old podcast, the uh, sysadmin Podcast, Text Snap, um, and one of the most popular segments of that was the war stories, where people write in stories uh, about crazy things as they happen. Like uh, my friend Alan from Ireland, I had one about working at IBM and getting the support call. From NASA asking about, you know, are there any of these chemicals in the makeup of a ThinkPad? Uh, Because we want to send them into space and we don't want them to explode or to off gas and poison the astronauts (laughs) Uh, and stuff like that. Or, you know, uh, they upgraded the security at the data center and they have these new electrically controlled, uh, like, you know, swipe card gates and so on for letting people in. But then we had the great blackout. Uh, I think that was what, 04 or 03? Something like that. Big blackout in the Northeast US and Canada. Um, and um, so eventually they ran out of diesel for their uh, generators. So not long after, the fuel truck finally shows up and they're going to get back online and they're all happy. And then they realize without electricity, we can't. Open the gate to let the truck in to <laughs> deposit the diesel. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. And like, I, I told a bunch of uh, my own stories and so on. Anyway, it's great fun. Uh, and so, you know, that's, uh, you know, the types of talks that I like, but especially the, the social track stuff that I like. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we could orchestrate enough of that to do that as a boff. One day at lunch, just a whole bunch of like five or ten minute versions of war stories, and people just tell war stories. Lunch, yeah. That would take a bunch of coordination because you'd have to like have people send in their ideas and that you basically have to do a, a mini call for papers for the lunchtime track or something. But yeah, that might be a some lot w- of fun.
0: Yeah, some like work in progress section where people can send like five minute yeah just uh,
1: segments. Yeah, do it sooner.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, hmm. I'm could be have to a think thing. About that. I mean, the spontaneous talks is uh, also the interesting ones where people just, you know, someone just has to keep time so that they don't run. Right, over. but
1: if you have only a few minutes to condense uh, a war story, you really have to do some work to condense it down uh, mm-hmm. to make sure you get all the important information in, but you don't end up turning it into a 20-minute version of the story. <laughs> yeah okay but back to the conference anyway, yes. um, now the conference hasn't even started yet at this point <laughs> uh, you know I've done a bunch of touristy stuff I've been to some nice parks and done some interesting stuff and eaten all the tasty foods uh, of course before the conference started I had already done uh, okodama yaki uh, sushi uh, shabu shabu um, I don't know gyozas I don't know we did a couple other things too uh, oh. and that doesn't even count lunch Uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had, had crepes. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Uh, so was it like Nutella and raisins and something else? I don't know. It was good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so many varieties to choose from, yeah. Uh, Japan is just tasty, yes. very tasty. And then the conference started. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we attended a couple of talks. Um Uh, We listed the ones that we uh, attended here, but of course the main
1: program is uh, on the Con website. And Uh, and thankfully this year, if you click on any one of the talks, at the bottom, it includes the link for the paper. Ah, for people. Uh, And then the slides should show up shortly as well, and then the videos. Ah, uh, perfect! You can get the section of the the proceedings book uh, available there, uh, or actually on the front page of the website, you can get one big PDF of the, the whole proceedings if you want as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking awesome. of which, I'm looking for a volunteer to help me add all the FreeBSD ones to papers.freebsd.org. Uh, so if you are happy to write a very short amount of markdown uh, for each of these and prepare a big pull request on GitHub uh, to add these PDFs with the author's name and email address and the little description of the talk from the program there uh, into the markdown files or whatever, Uh, we'd very much look forward to that. Uh, So you just got to go to github.com slash freebsd slash freebsd dash papers. And there's a readme with instructions and we just want to add all the FreeBSD talks uh, to that repository because OpenBSD and NetBSD have already done that to their version of this. So we mm-hmm. want to keep up.
0: <laughs> yeah, so definitely there's someone out there, I guess,
1: who will uh, find the time to do that. Yes, uh, you know, it's a good start towards getting a FreeBSD document bit.
0: Mm, yeah, Yeah. so small, small changes like that can lead to many big things, if you want. So um, so I attended uh, Emmanuel Vado's talk, A Venture in DRM Land, How to Write a FreeBSD ARM64 DRM Driver. Uh, that was interesting yeah. because he covered basically all the gotchas and all kind of bugs and things that he had to stumble upon to get it working. And it's kind of a good inside story about how embedded development generally goes for a board yeah, that you've never seen the before. The middle or? bit
1: was just about the pieces that go into DRM and... Uh, it was even useful to understand how it would work on your laptop. Uh, it wasn't really ARM specific. You know, part of the the stories in the beginning and the end were, but the middle bit was really, you know, these are the different components of DRM, and you know, these ones are hardware specific, and these ones aren't, and these are video card specific, and these ones aren't. Um, and just learning about like how it layers things, and and you know, how some of the functions are named after old CRT monitors because that's what existed <laughs> when we wrote them. And, uh-huh. Yeah. So
0: yeah, that was that was definitely good uh, talk to start with. And then I went to PowerPC 64 architecture support in FreeBSD ports. Uh, that was um, from Piotr, who was who's a sysadmin in, in, in Poland, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And he talked about um, how the support is going, what the current status is, and what is uh, needed to have that
1: yeah uh, as the power 9 architecture starts to take off we're going to want to get uh you know in order to drive adoption of freebsd on power 9 we're going to need to have most of the ports people want working so that doesn't mean we have to get all thirty thousand working but uh getting the ones people use uh frequently especially you know the big things working uh will be very important so uh big thank you to all the people working on getting uh the ports working on power 9.
0: Yep, we can't thank ports people enough for all the work that they're doing because they will give us the software that we're using day to day, and I mm-hmm. think we sometimes don't give them enough credit. Then okay. next up, uh, I attended well, the, Alan's um, talk. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did that. Yeah. Managing system images with ZFS, and I I attended this talk already once. Uh, but then I thought, okay, let's attend it again because I wanted to, you know, remember certain things, and that it, was a, well, this uh, version uh, was quite a bit different actually. Uh, mm. I, I recognized during the talk that it had some more things in it but that was yeah, something like good to have
1: The version I gave at EuroBSDCon last year uh, was more focused on the developer side and the tooling like improving Poudreira and what we can do in FreeBSD to make it easier to do this The version at FOSDEM was focused on as a system in how would you use this on your laptop and your servers Yep, and then the HBSD con 1 was focused on how would you use this as a vendor to make appliances, and also how where the project needs to focus on improving uh, the boot code process stuff so that we can have redundancy for some of the bits we've never needed redundancy before. So uh, if you look at something like NanoBSD, the redundancy is implemented in GPT-Boot. Um, but with ZFS, that code itself has to change when ZFS gets updated, which means you need redundancy for that code. So you actually have to implement the redundancy one step sooner. Uh, and we you know, we have UEFI as a thing now. Uh, and so we need to actually support basically fallback for the EFI loader so that when you update it, if the updated one doesn't work, the system automatically Falls back to trying the other one uh, and making sure that you can. Um, the system will boot. Uh, it might take one extra power cycle, but you should always be able to get the system back up, uh, ideally with no physical interaction with the box. Just remotely power cycle it or whatever, but not have to type any commands at a keyboard or anything or press any buttons. Uh, and so my work there was focused on that. Um, and, you know, in the, in the process of writing the paper, I thought a lot more deeply about a couple of these things. Uh, so, also, the paper goes into details in a bunch of places where there just wasn't time to do it in the talk either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons I I like having the, the paper type thing that Asia BSDCon does. I wouldn't want to have to do it for every conference, but, um, I, you know, being the first conference of the year every year, it is... Uh, I like that the concept of having those longer papers. I know a bunch of people don't, but yeah, well, it's a, a bunch of speakers would rather not university. have to write the long paper. But um, mm-hmm. you know, I find the 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 end result is worth it, even though it is a lot more work. Right, but the depth of the, that you
0: can go into that a talk wouldn't probably be be good for that. That's good, and people uh, can if you didn't see the talk, they can still read the paper and find everything that they need in that. It's like reading the book versus watching the movie, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think because you know, just watching my presentation uh, or reading my slides is not going to give you the same thing, uh, uh, the same level of understanding of the process as reading the paper would. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, then I uh, went to a couple of hallway tracks, so I didn't see many talks of the for the rest of the, the day. But I was no, definitely we, attending.
1: Well, we had the banquet after we could talk. Oh about yes,
0: that, that was nice. Yeah. Definitely something that uh, we enjoyed. And we that we spent a couple of hours there and talked to people. And that was a nice way of um, ending the first day. Mm-hmm. And then the second day, I attended the uh, keynote by George Neville Neal, The Security Fantasies and Realities of the BSDs. That was the title.
1: Where were you all morning?
0: <laughs> um, I was I was at the conference and I talked to people. And then suddenly, mm-hmm. oh, the morning is already over. And I uh, had to go to lunch with mm-hmm. nice bento boxes. And then, yeah as soon as i looked at the at the clock the next time oh it's time for the keynote
1: Yeah. um so the morning i went to jason Tubner's talk about using uh bsd and uh, mostly free bsd for the hypervisor and open bsd for routers um at the an australian health services uh, ngo uh, which was interesting to see their approaches to that and what their um uh, thought process is into picking versions of FreeBSD and so on. Uh, at the same time, I, I couldn't be in two places at once, but at the same time, uh, in the other room, they were talking about the uh, virtual machine state, save and restore, and live migration for Beehive. And uh, I saw in the mailing list that uh, a bunch of that is now ready for review. So it might uh, be landing relatively soon. Mm-hmm. So excited to hear about that. Yeah. Uh, Then at 10, uh, was the talk I was most interested in for, um, you know, having been on the program committee and and saw every talk that was submitted. This is definitely the one I was most interested in, which was yet another container migration uh, for FreeBSD. Um, So we previously talked about having, uh, there's the VPS system that someone wrote uh, quite a few years ago now um, to do live migration of jails between hosts. Mm -hmm. uh, But this one is a bit different and does it in a more standard way. So it uses run C, which is part of the the kind of standard cloud native foundation or whatever. Um, it's a standard specification for containers that's not specific to any one type of container. Uh, so they made it so that that will work on FreeBSD. Uh, and so it, it's not finished yet, but uh, it can actually do live migrations now. Um but the really interesting thing is that uh, when it's completely finished, it will be able to do live migrations between operating systems. So you'd be able to take a container that's running on Linux and then migrate it to FreeBSD and have it keep running, and then you could migrate it back to Linux and it would keep running too. Um, so right now, it works, but there's some manual bits to edit some of the metadata to translate the Linux-specific stuff to FreeBSD-specific stuff, uh, and that will be, you know, done programmatically in the future. It's just not quite there yet. Uh, like, I think one of the ones is when you specify the limits on CPU time for the container, Linux does it in s- some weird math way, uh, and on FreeBSD you specify a you know CPU percentage. Uh, and so some of the values and stuff have to be translated uh, and so on but in general uh, it looks really interesting and with the run C port done uh, and that docker can use run C as its back end it might actually be getting closer to be able to use docker to run jails on freebsd without actually having to teach docker about jails because uh, you can use this kind okay. of middleware run thing that's meant to do work on any container framework and has already been taught about jails.
0: That would solve a lot of porting headaches.
1: People usually would have. Yeah, I, they... I don't quite know enough about Docker to know how much it solves and um, mm-hmm. there's a bit of a language barrier um, when I was trying to ask the speaker questions. Um, mm-hmm. Luckily. Some other people in the room then translated my question into Japanese, uh, and he was able to answer in very good English, but apparently couldn't understand yeah. uh, when I was asking the questions. But uh, you know, it's getting Docker to work on FreeBSD is not really his research. His research is doing migration of containers yeah, between cool. operating systems. because mm-hmm. um, he had a very good uh, like idea behind it is if you run half your containers on FreeBSD and half on Linux if a security vulnerability comes up that affects only one of the two OSs, you could migrate the important containers over to the other one. The other platform. It's similar That's to like how um, VeriSign folks does it for them. DNS servers, where they run half on Linux and half on FreeBSD so that if there's a vulnerability in one, it's not going to affect both. And I think they also use two or three different DNS server programs On each of those OSs. So if that, you know, if there's a vulnerability in bind, it doesn't affect their uh, two thirds of their name servers that are running something that's not bind, Mm -hmm. and so on. And I think that kind of idea and just making sure that you always have at least two choices for every component of your system uh, is actually important to long term longevity and so on.
0: Yeah, especially, I mean, there was this era where everyone wanted to go migrate into the container world or like a couple of years ago, migrate into the virtualization world. But now everyone or most people are now running their containers, whatever they are, in some kind of environment. But now it's becoming more important to migrate them because they've been running for a while and they need to migrate to a new server or to a new network. And so that's becoming more and more important, I think, in the couple of years uh, to come.
1: Right, and also just having good native containers rather than you're running a container in a VM, therefore uh, negating yeah. about half of the usefulness of a container. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yes, some of the other interesting bits uh, from the, the my container migration talk were extending the FreeBSD kernel to support um, resetting uh, the state on TCP sockets and so on. Um, so it could actually, when you freeze a... Uh, the processes on the sending host. You then extract the TCP send and receive buffers, and then you recreate oh, the yeah. sockets on the other side. And you need new um, set, o- set sock opt calls to actually refill those send and receive buffers. So then, on the the receiving host, you know, when the process starts back up, it can get the other half of the message it was in the middle of processing. Oh, okay, interesting.
0: As, especially with regards to sequence numbers and all that. Yes, so, and then there was huh. the other
1: part was making sure to reset the sequence numbers and all the other internal state in TCP. Mm. Uh, and I, One of the questions that uh, it was hard to get translated and to understand was um, if you'd be able to do some kind of process snapshotting so that uh, currently what you do basically is you suspend the container on the sending machine, yeah. replicate it all, and then start it on the receiving machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but what if you could snapshot the process, the the container, on the sending machine, which might have, you know, many gigs worth of memory, uh, and so on. Replicate that, but not actually start it. Uh, and then do an incremental replication. Mm. And then like only, only then uh, do the final freeze of the process, and replicate only the minor differences, so that the amount of time the proce- the, the container is unavailable is much smaller. Mm, similar you know, uh, to ZFS? Some of my containers are using 10 to 20 gigs of RAM. Uh, it would take a while to replicate that, uh, and having it down that whole time would be a disadvantage uh, over um, if it was only going to be down for a couple seconds. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's certainly an it, interesting it, Basically, Beehive went through the same process. Uh, we've had stop migration uh, available as a patch for Beehive for a while, but being able to do live required coming up with this way to do uh, incremental where you basically replicate the snapshot of everything, and then after the snapshot, the virtual memory system has to keep track of what pages you actually modified so, it knows which ones to send during the incremental. And you need to reset those modified flags uh, and then do it again uh, until you get to the point where the, the delta is small enough that once you actually stop the process, you'll be able to replicate the difference and start it back up quickly enough.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. So, there's work going on. Yes, there's in more that work area to be done. And- uh, but um, this was. Uh, very encouraging, and and the amounts of it that work already uh, were, you know, like I said, very encouraging. Uh, it's it's not just an idea at this phase. There's actually enough working code that you could actually start using this pretty soon, and then we would just improve it by making it support live migration instead of just migration. Cool, ah, that looks promising. Yeah, I think there were a couple other questions about some of the TCP socket state stuff. Um, while it deals with the buffer and the sequence number and so on, um, there were questions about like, does it deal with the path MTU and other like uh, TCP option type stuff where maybe the defaults might be different on FreeBSD or Linux, or just the the bits negotiated between the, the, the two hosts uh, might need to be synchronized. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what other talks did you go to? Uh, I also went to the the keynote and then uh, in the afternoon uh, I think you and I went to the same two talks. Yeah, Mm -hmm. is that router? Yeah, well because my talk had been about updating your OS especially on remote machines so I was very interested in remote update for uh, firmware level devices. So this was uh, little routers basically um, with only Four or eight megabytes of storage. So, mm-hmm. not one where you're going to use ZFS to do it. Uh, but, you know, I have a bunch of these. Um, no, I don't have one handy. This is part of it. Anyway, the Onion Omega um, MIPS boards uh, are similar where they have, I think, 16 megabytes of flash. Um, and when I first wanted to flash it, I managed to do it by either you can do it with the via Pixie booting TFTP from the U bootloader. Uh and I also managed to I for the TP link, which is the same chip as the Onion Omega 1, if you boot the Linux thing that's on it, you can use the web interface and feed it a FreeBSD image and it'll overwrite the Linux and, and run FreeBSD. But once you have FreeBSD on it, how do you actually update it a second time?
0: Yeah. you get the access
1: this yeah. way. And yeah. so this talk described how to do it. Uh, mostly you have to load the new firmware image somewhere and then uh, or what you can do is load the current firmware image into memory as a tempfs and then reroute onto it so you're no longer using the disk. Uh-huh. So then you can overwrite the disk uh, from inside FreeBSD. Uh, whereas when I tried to just overwrite the disk while running off of it uh, obviously the ls command wasn't where it was supposed to be anymore. UFS got very upset when suddenly it had been overwritten with a different image. <laughs> um, where are my files now? <laughs> yeah, it's like this This iNode doesn't make any sense. Um, and so described how to do that, but also talked about the problem of, uh, by default, tempfs doesn't use your last four megabytes of memory. Uh, it reserves that for the OS. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. To make sure that if you make a tempfs and accidentally fill it with more stuff than you have RAM, that uh it's not going to host your system. Which makes perfect sense on your laptop or a big server or something. But on a machine with only 8 megabytes of memory, it, it means you can't make straight. a tempfs bigger than 4 megabytes. And you're you need, you know, 5 megabytes for this image. Uh, and so uh, he had a patch that had been sitting in Fabricator for like a year or something uh, to make it a compile time option so that in the the kernels for the small boards you could actually just say uh, you know the, the limit on this board with 8 megabytes of memory is 512 kilobytes uh, then uh, so anyway I, I committed that for him so that's Uh. uh, available now there was some discussion of making it a tunable or something but because most of these boards use something like uboot rather than the FreeBSD loader uh setting in those tunables and so on is a little more complicated Hmm. okay anyway uh so i learned what i needed to know uh to to finish building my little mips board uh and i managed to help the presenter with uh their work as well. So I think that talk worked very well in both directions.
0: Oh yeah. Very nice. And a lot of other people could also benefit from that. And the last talk you saw was
1: uh... Improving Ah, the security of the FreeBSD boot process. Uh, Because, hey, I'm talking about a bunch of changes to the FreeBSD boot process. I maybe should see what other people are doing in the same area. Uh, (laughs) And in particular, how do you keep the security thing like this the secure boot chain all the way up through into the os um when you want to be able to have two different loaders that you can switch between uh and have a variable influence which one you use so that you can have uh the right kind of failover for your appliance so you want secure boot for your appliance so that somebody can't inject rogue bits or something and make it so that uh your device is compromised, but at the same time, you need the device to be able to be upgraded, and it needs to be able to fail back after the upgrade. If the upgrade doesn't work properly, it needs to be able to go back to the old version. So that means you need to have secure boot work for both of these at the same time.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that pretty much was the uh, the conference and the talks that
1: we were attending. Uh, Then there was a work-in-progress session. Uh, I talked a bit about my work on VDEV properties for ZFS. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we ended up with a bit of extra time still. I would have um, also given a a second short update about uh, the idea of killing off uh, compressed arc, or not killing off compressed arc, uh, killing off your ability to have a not compressed arc. (laughs) The, the, the dedupt send or something? What was nope. that? that? That's a separate... Uh, I would have mentioned that ah. too. Uh, that ZFS, OpenZFS is working on a deprecation policy since they have the first feature they want to deprecate, which is uh, deduplicated send, which is nothing to do with the on-disk dedupe. It's just for sends. Um, and then the second one is going to be... Uh, it's. I don't know if it really calls uh, it should be called a deprecation because what we're doing is taking away a tunable that let you turn one of the new features off which was basically kept around as a, a safety belt in case there was something wrong with the new feature. But it turns mm. out the new feature is really good and you probably don't want to turn it off. And more importantly, allowing you to turn it off causes a lot of extra work uh, in all the code uh, and is complicating some things we want to do. Uh, so we're thinking of getting rid of it. Uh, and it sounds like it's everybody's on board uh, with getting rid of it so far. So if somebody or- has a really good reason why not, they need to speak up soon. That's good, so that will be uh, something we look forward to. Mm-hmm. And there were a bunch of other work-in-progress sessions. Uh, I don't remember all of them. I was tired. Um, we The video for that will be available and you'll be able to watch that uh, hopefully yeah. soon. Yeah, there will be...
0: Uh, we will link to that from the show notes next time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, yeah, so that was Asia BSDCon, and... Um, we have another item, of course, in this week's episode. Uh, the FreeBSD quarterly status report from the fourth quarter of 2018 is out. Mm-hmm. And they're quick uh, of catching up with the last or with the putting up the new ones. And the, the team is now working um, in a new process, creating these uh, on uh, GitHub so that people can send them pull requests with status updates, items they want to have in there. And so that makes the creation of the uh, quarterly status reports easier. And quicker. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, they have a little burp at the beginning, um, basically introducing the whole thing and um, giving a little bit of a teaser what the contents would be like. Um, But it actually is mostly... uh, So there are a couple of reports from teams. uh, Continuous integration, the core team, the foundation, the graphics team, and release engineering team as well as the ports collection have status updates for you and what they did in that quarter. And then there's a section about projects. Uh, There's an AMD64 user mode protection keys update or project. Uh, Beehive live migration and save and restore. Uh, Capsicum got a little bit of news in that quarter. A uh, collection of VT color schemes is now possible, so you can uh, design and, uh, you know, tune your little VT screen the way you want in the colors you want, and the bike shed is, of course, always green. Um, <laughs> there's I386 PAE page table support and improving FreeBSD boot security, PF sync performance improvements, that's a big one, and PWM kernel API and userland utility. There's also updates on architectures like the Broadcom ARM64. Uh, there's a DTS upgrade. Uh, there's uh, various driver updates and um, other supports for uh, embedded boards like the Marvel 8K and PineBooks and Rockchip. Ports has an, a section about the KDE status, uh, because now we're on KDE5. And the KDE team put a lot of work in there to uh, make that possible in FreeBSD. So now that is the, the status that we have. And there's a miscellaneous section about the BSD PL, the um, conference that well not the conference, the the hack that's a hackathon. <laughs> Their meetups basically uh, um, that happened quite a while. And you if you watch the show, we have announced them a couple of times. As well as third party projects are there, clono S, Harden BSD has an update there, and the Nosh project. So the report is a big one and it's definitely worth reading. And a uh, couple of people have been uh, asking about when the quarterly status reports are coming out. So they're already looking for news for the next one. So yeah, you can already submit some news if you have them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it's. I'm. Um, uh, thanks to Edward and everyone else, uh, Marius, uh, that are working on. The status reports again uh, i find them very useful um, because you know there's a bunch of stuff going on that i just didn't even know was going on Uh, and uh, it's very encouraging and you know i'm interested in the power 9 stuff so it's nice to be able to read what they've uh, managed to do in the last couple of months oh yes so we
0: can't keep track of everything but that's why we have these reports
1: yeah and you know uh, also, just a summary. If you just watched each individual commit, you might not realize that uh, in those three months, they managed to improve the interrupt handler uh, to the point where it takes 10% less time to build the kernel than it did before.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. And sometimes these commits are like um, spread out over a whole year or a whole quarter, mm-hmm. and you don't know how they belong to, to each other. But then if you read the whole summary of how many commits went into a certain project, then you can see, ah, this got to that. Uh, feature or to that solution now. Yep.
1: Uh, Or that Power9 has now successfully booted a kernel compiled with LLVM rather than GCC. Mm -hmm. So that support is maturing well.
0: Yeah. So these are not always um, reports about finished stuff, but mostly telling you about where they are, status reports, milestones they reached, and that's a good way of uh, keeping up with uh, what's happening in a project uh, of
1: this size. No, because uh, I've also been paying attention to the uh, libvdisc, um which is a uh, work in progress right now, but will give uh, Beehive the ability to read and write QCOW2 images. I think uh, this is based on the work that OpenBSD did for the same thing for VMM, uh, but it'll be very nice to have uh, when Beehive can read and write uh, QCOW2 images. Uh, and this library will make it easy. To, uh, once this library... Or once Beehive supports this library, we could extend it to do other things as well.
0: Oh yeah, that would be interesting because it also ties into the what we talked about earlier into the migration, or at least having the possibility to, you know, convert these images back and forth.
1: Yeah, because uh, you know having QCav that lives in a ZVol and can be replicated might be kind of interesting.
0: So yeah, uh, thanks for all the people who did the work and um, submitted uh, those reports. And we look always forward to uh, next one, which is quarter, well, first quarter of twenty nineteen, which is yes, almost which, over. The, the, the so. first quarter of
1: well, no, the first quarter of twenty nineteen ended three days ago. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, so everything you've worked on so far this year, you need to write a status report, uh, and it's just some text with. Yes, yeah. nice markdown formatting. It's super easy. Just go make it. Mm, doesn't you, have do to pull be long. you don't even have to install Git. You can do it all on the website. <laughs> just do clickety-clickety-click, <laughs> clickety-click, typeety-type and it's good to go. Yeah. Other people will copy edit it and fix the language for you if you want.
0: It's yes, just, that's did or did. a helpful thing that they uh, will look after the the grammar and all that nitpicky all <laughs> stuff. Okay, um, we also have a story about a ghost BSD, a solid Linux-like open source alternative. I guess that's supposed to read Unix-like, that's because Linux is not Unix. Um, right, no, but, but I think they
1: actually mean uh, it's a BSD that could that pose is as a Linux? more comfortable for people that are used to Linux. Well, oh, okay, It's like what they're used to.
0: Ah, because it's a Linux insider. Yeah, okay, that yes. makes sense to
1: uh, compare this. So, uh, they go on to say, the subject of this week's Linux Picks uh, is a representative of a less well-known computing platform that coexists with Linux as an open source operating system, uh, and that is BSD, the Berkeley Software Distribution. And it shares many of the same features that make OSs like uh, Linux viable alternatives to proprietary computing platforms. So, uh... GhostBSD is a user-friendly Linux-like desktop operating system based on TrueOS, which in turn is based on FreeBSD's uh, development branch. TrueOS's goal is to combine the stability and security of FreeBSD with uh, pre-installed graphical user interfaces and so on. Uh, since they stumbled across uh, TrueOS while checking out new desktop environments and uh, they learned about Lumina and the fact that that came from TrueOS and so on. Along the way, I discovered that today's BSD computing family is not the closed source Unix platform, uh, that the old, you know, 386 BSD, no, bsd was back in the day. Anyway, uh, so they say in last week's red core Linux review, I mentioned that the Lumina desktop environment is under development, uh, and it's, they were liking it. Uh, Lumina is being developed primarily for the BSDs, but is portable and runs on Linux as well. Uh. So they say, uh, ghost PSD is a pleasant discovery. It has nothing to do with being spooky either. Uh, that goes for both the distro and the open source computing family. It exposes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> so they say the, uh, Lumina mission unfolds. Uh, the Lumina desktop can be installed manually on a few compatible Linux distros. I wrote it in the initial uh, review of Lumina's potential for Linux. However, the Lumina desktop is, um, on Linux is still not readily available without some tinkering. I think that mostly package repo stuff and so. But anyway, Lumina is the default desktop uh, for a few of the BSD projects. So my initial hope for this review was to review TrueOS uh, BST project running the Lumina desktop. However, Ken Moore is the founder and lead developer of Lumina um, and used to work on the PCBSD project that eventually became TrueOS. Alas, TrueOS has been uh, discontinued as a standalone release uh, with Lumina. Uh, TrueOS is basically a platform for building other operating systems now. Uh, basically, it's the base they used to build FreeNAS uh, Project Trident, which is basically the continuation of the ideas of PCBSD uh, and GhostBSD. Mm-hmm. uh and the idea was making the tools so anybody can make a distro kind of just like how there are thousands of distros of linux there uh all the tooling is there for you to make your own distro of bsd uh the lumina desktop is part of project trident uh still waiting to take a closer look at that and the redesigned lumina 2 uh but anyway they instead got around to reviewing ghost bsd um <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they say, previous releases of GhostBSD offered two desktops, uh, Mate and XFCE. The latest release uh, focuses on Mate uh, with an extension, uh, which or which is the extension of the old Gnome 2 desktop. Uh, but they say still, Mate is an interesting user interface to compare BSDs to your kind of traditional Linux. Because when you log into Mate, uh, if you compare it to a Linux distro that uses Mate uh, or an older one that we used Gnome 2 before that became Uh you probably be hard-pressed to tell that you're not running Linux uh, because you're actually running Mate uh, and what OS is under it really doesn't matter anymore. Anyway, they uh, have a bunch of history of the VSD for all those uh, Linux people that don't know what's what. Uh, <laughs> and then they talk a bit about what the differences are and the packages and... Uh, couple of screenshots. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, a good start. Uh, so they start. start with the loaded question, which one is better? And they say, well, that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> they say, it depends on your needs and your technical skills. My first impressions from dabbling with BSD are twofold. One, it looks more grown up uh, than it behaves. BSD resembles the uh, performance of some early Linux distros. Um, but, you know, Linux operating systems, uh, well, they think they're more reliable, but I think that's a little crazy. <laughs> um, but they say, I see BSDTA in much the same place as Linux was, uh, before. Um, uh, it replicates the look and feel of the various Linux OSes with familiar desktop environments. Uh, then they say Linux is easier to use, especially for less tech savvy users. Uh, which reminds me of some of the April Fool's Day, uh, jokes I saw saying that Debian and and Ubuntu were going to get rid of VI because it was hard for new users and they couldn't figure out how to exit and so on.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You need to know the special keys. (laughs) Oh yeah, so that's definitely an interesting article for people who haven't heard about these distributions of uh, GhostBSD before in particular. So um, yeah, look at the rest and uh, try it out for yourself. So, it's time for the news roundup this week. We have found an article about Sparkbook thousand ST, the coolest 90s laptop.
1: Yeah, so uh, the poster goes on to say, A few weeks back I managed to pick up an incredibly rare laptop in immaculate condition, uh, condition for $50 on Kijiji, which is like a Craigslist-like thing in Canada. I don't know if it's in the US okay. as well or not. Anyway, uh, it's a Tadpole Technologies Sparkbook three thousand ST from nineteen ninety seven. Uh, so it came with two other uh, working Pentium laptops from the nineties. It's a pretty good mm-hmm. deal. Uh, so basically, it's a hundred and seventy megahertz uh, Fujitsu tub- uh, Turbo Spark CPU, which was the fastest, not sixty four bit Ultra Spark. Uh, Ever, and it has a whopping 128 megabytes of RAM. Uh, you know, in 1997, that was an awful lot for a laptop. Uh, came with Solaris 2.5.1 installed with Open Windows. Uh, has a magnesium alloy body that is military grade. <laughs> uh, basically, the whole thing's made out of metal, uh, except for the ergonomic uh, handrest, because you know it's meant to be tough. Uh, and it has an IBM ThinkPad keyboard. Uh, oh, IBM yes. was one of the early investors in the Tadpole, the company that built this. It has built-in ISDN, Ethernet, PCMCIA, um, external SCSI support, uh, keyboard, mouse, VGA, and sound ports. Ah. Huh.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, well, back in the day,
1: that was a decent machine. Yes. So in 1997, this laptop cost $21,000. Gulp. Like I said, an unimaginable amount of RAM and the fastest CPU you could buy and so on. (laughs) So they say, um, Sun computers were an expensive desire for many computer geeks in the 90s. Uh, Running Unix on a Spark-based laptop was, well, just as cool as it gets. Uh, Spark was an open hardware platform that anyone could make and Tadpole licensed the Solaris Unix operating system from Sun for their Spark books. Tadpole essentially made high-end Unix and VAX workstations, Uh, on costly, unusual platforms like PowerPC, Deck, uh, and Spark. But only their Spark books were popular in the high-end Unix market in the 90s. I I brought this thing uh, home and tried to find a power supply that would work. Unfortunately, uh, it takes a very strange diameter power plug uh, and power requirements. It's uh, 12 volts at 4.6 amps. Uh, so I went on eBay, and out of Sherlock, sure someone in New York was selling the original power supply in mint shape. Um, oh, okay. Of course, it cost almost as much as the laptop, did $30. Uh, a week later, it arrived, and it was ready to go. Uh, and you can actually see it running with screenshots here.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. Here we go.
1: The only problem, oh. I didn't have the root password. Well, it's hilarious. I would imagine single user mode and just mount, read, write, and overwrite the password with the password command. That usually works, right? Mm, But not in this case. Ah, Uh, Yes, in order to uh, go into maintenance mode off a CD, he would need a SCSI CD drive. (laughs) doesn't have one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and the
0: Ethernet port on the back is actually an ISDN port.
1: So and it shows the the makeup of the once this like couple hundred megabyte disk that it has mhm and how uh, all the partitions are laid out because
0: closer to the inner ring is faster back in the mm-hmm.
1: day and even now on spinning disks the same is true mhm if we still have spinning disks yeah.
0: so oh, uh, okay. yeah that's I, an interesting thing i have idea.
1: hundreds and hundreds of them
0: <laughs> yeah um so yeah, you can see how the disk is laid out and there's a screenshot of OpenWin, the open Windows desktop.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Some real nostalgia computer going, computing going on here.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, and then, what did you do after getting uh, it running? A bit of the detective work, uh, the article writes. I want to find out more about what this machine was used for and by whom. And so they talk a bit about the software installed and... Uh, Things they found on of the hard course,
1: disk. At the end, they installed Doom because every <laughs> machine needs Doom. And they stopped yes. all the services they didn't need to speed up the boot process uh, um, and made their desktop background a miniature Sun logo.
0: Ah, yes. A
1: classic one.
0: <laughs> oh, great. yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Definitely nice to have uh, for some nostalgia. And maybe it runs NetBSD, so could be a thing. But um, speaking of the BSDs, we also have other news from uh, the OpenBSD or OpenSSH camp in this case. Uh, OpenSSH 8.0 will be releasing with quantum computing resistant keys. Well, key exchange. Key exchange, yeah. So uh, that's that interesting enough to cover in this episode. So uh, the article here starts uh, that OpenSSH 7.9 came out with a host of bug fixes last year with a few new features, uh, as is to be expected in minor releases. However, recently, Damien Miller, whose um, main work is uh, on OpenSSH, uh, has announced that OpenSSH 8.0 is nearly ready to be released. And yes, it's so undergoing...
1: Actually, they have a call for testing. So if you'd like to try it out, please do that.
0: Yeah. Because OpenSSH is running on so many different systems, they need to ensure that compatibility across these systems uh, is ensured and that there's no uh, things that crept in that didn't work before, some regressions.
1: But well, if you remember, features- there was the um, the SCP bugs that were found where you could uh, trick SCP into storing um, the file name uh, to downloading the file you want to the wrong file name or to sending two files and stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they've done some work around that, uh, saying that now. Copying file names with SCP will be more secure, starting with OpenSSH 8, due to the fact that copying file names from a remote to a local directory will prompt SCP to check if the files sent from the server actually match what you requested. Otherwise, an attack server uh, could theoretically be able to intercept the request by serving malicious files in place of the ones you actually asked for. Knowing this, you're probably better off never using SCP anyway. And the OpenSSH advisory specifically says, the SCP protocol is outdated, inflexible, and not readily fixed. Uh, We recommend that you use a more modern protocol like SFTP or RSync. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: But they list a couple of interesting features that got our attention. So... um Where's the list? Ah, oh, where does it start? The, the, there's there's a section for new features and there's a section for bug fixes.
1: Yeah, um, so new features. The first new feature.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most promising new features is the experimental quantum computing resistant key exchange method that Damien mentioned in his tweet uh, that we also linked from the show notes. Uh, it makes a big step in OpenSSH's dev cycle as developments in this area of key distribution will make encryption systems immune to technological advances. And you can read more about quantum computing key distribution in the link that they have on the article. And yeah, they increased the default RSA key size to
1: 3072 bits. Yeah, so your 2048-bit keys will not be accepted anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, the quantum computing resistant stuff is interesting, although I don't know that we can claim anything will ever be immune to technological advances because there will always be unexpected technological advances um, and so on. But
0: But they're thinking ahead at least and making sure that they are not in a position where, oh, we should have done this 10 years ago.
1: Yep, Um, but they use the Streamline NTRU Prime, uh, 4591 to the power of 761, (laughs) and the X25519, Curve. um they also added support for ecdsa keys that are stored in pkcs 11 tokens so that's like hardware devices i think uh, i've done some extra stuff like uh, drop connections will still be logged if you have the force command internal SFTP restriction set up and there's other bunch of interesting stuff Uh, I think the one I found most interesting is a new uh, convenience slash security feature. Uh, When you SSH to a host and you get the prompt of, oh, I've never seen this key before. Are you sure this is the host you want? And Mm -hmm. you can type yes or no or anything else and it'll ask you, did you mean yes or no? Um, Well, now there's a third option above yes and no. And that is the key. So instead of answering yes or no, you can paste the expected key. If it uh, matches, that means yes. And if it doesn't, it means no. Mm-hmm. And this way, you don't have to manually compare these big long strings because it turns out humans aren't great at that. Um, so if you actually paste the key you expect, then it will either be the same or won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really clever idea. I don't know why we didn't think of that a long time ago. <laughs>
0: Yeah, as long as we post correctly and don't omit any any bits and bytes there or characters, then this well, should
1: be. In uh, that case, you just try again, right? You're not. Yeah, you're this not, is not blocked. Uh, worst case, you don't connect, and then you get to try again instead of something else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we should uh, try this out when it's available.
1: Yeah. Well, so, so they're, they're doing the call for testing now, uh, but. It'll be available after the release, sure, but you might want to test it first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sure the release is good. Test box.
0: And I mean, testing SSH is not difficult. I mean, you set up a box and install the client and, you know, connect to it.
1: Yeah. Um, like, in my case, you, you don't have to overwrite uh, user bin SSH. You can have user local bin SSH. and Oh,
0: or, or yeah. You yeah. don't even have to do remote connectivity. Yeah,
1: Well, no, I just mean... You can have both SSHs installed at the same time. Yes, so all the new next to each own, other. Yeah, that way you know when you're using the new one, but you also don't have to stop using the old one. Uh, and yeah, so on.
0: don't lock yourself out. <laughs> Doing testing.
1: Because right, it also apparently fixed two race conditions related to when you do a SIGHUP to re- reload the config on the running server. Uh, Remnant file descriptors in recently forked child processes could block the parent's attempt to listen on the configured addresses. Also, the restarting parent SSHD should exit before any child processes that were awaiting their re-execution state had completed reading, uh, leaving them in the fallback path. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yeah, so most of these fixes are security related, but there's also improvements in documentation for the proxy jump command or um, for making and things more clear in the manuals.
1: Pages and pages of the stuff, but go check it out. Mm-hmm. And lastly, for the roundup today, we have Project Trident 18.12 update number eight.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, The first thing they say is uh, thank you for all your patience. Uh, They've been working on this for a while. And um, Project Trident has finally finished some significant infrastructure updates over the last two weeks. And they're pleased to announce that the package update 8 for 18.12 release is now available. And they provide information on how to switch to those. And it's quite easy in your configuration tab in the update manager. You provide the new Trident release package repository. And there you go. Uh, so they have a bunch of things between uh, that change between uh, Update Seven and Update Eight, and so there's oh that's quite a list. So the most interesting ones I think are the ones. Uh, well, <laughs> the default theme for the Project Trident has been overhauled. That might not be the most important thing, but uh, um, no, uh,
1: <laughs> the biggest thing is that they've stopped using the FreeBSD package-based stuff and built their own. So, mm-hmm. they use a, a package based system that's actually in the ports tree. So, they basically made it, I, I guess it's 11 ports in the ports tree in a new uh, base category that build the operating system as packages instead of using um, the FreeBSD source tree to build the packages. So, what was 814 packages for OS blah before? is now 11 packages.
0: That's uh, more
1: manageable, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's a much smaller number of packages, uh, although it does mean that individual updates might be bigger because you're going to pull down the whole new version of that package rather than just you know, one of those 814 packages. But, uh, yes, it does seem more manageable, although... On something like Project Trident, where you're going to have thousands of packages because of the window managers and X and all that, I don't know that in the end that makes that big of a difference. But it The download solve times. Some of yeah. the, um, well, it's the same number of bytes in the end. It is having a few bigger things instead of smaller ones it might help a little bit, but I think mostly it will help avoid some of the conflicts and, and deprecation of a package and so on. Uh but yeah uh, it, so that's were, that's definitely a big change uh and it's kind of interesting that they did this in an update rather than a new version but uh with their six month based recycle that's about what we expect mm-hmm.
0: yeah they write and that they the switch over has resulted in a massive space saving for the isos so it's just three gigabytes instead of 4.1 gigs
1: that they had previously so if it's the same amount of stuff i don't know why that would be that different Probably there's
0: more uh, to it that that meets the eye. They probably did some more behind-the-scenes work to make that. Importantly,
1: the sysup utility will automatically migrate your system to the new style package format. and You don't have to actually do anything special. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also say this version of the build framework properly supports all the various uh, kernel and world build flags for FreeBSD. Because of this, Project Trident has disabled a lot of FreeBSD infrastructure that is not needed in a desktop-related use case. Ah, hence why you see much smaller... uh, version of stuff. Uh, yeah. You can see the entire list of options uh, that were done by running uh, the package R query on the build world uh, package, which will actually show you, basically, the source.conf they used to disable all the components of FreeBSD that they don't need in TrueOS. Or, uh, I guess in Trident, not TrueOS. Mm. Uh, note that all of this is still being uh, provided in the 18.12 stable version of TrueOS as a base operating system. The build framework is now independent of the OS version, so any future updates or enhancements to TrueOS build framework can be trivially enabled and used without needing to rebase on a newer version of TrueOS itself. So it'll allow things like Project Trident to continue to get those build framework updates on their stable branch without having to rebase on a newer version of TrueOS. Uh-huh. Cool.
0: Definitely something uh, to check out and see well how it works better with the um, new package base uh, that they've come up with. Mm-hmm. Time for Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have BSD Router Project released 1.92 uh, up on
1: SourceForge, their project home.
0: And stay yep. list uh, isn't- This
1: is... Uh, the BSD Router project based on FreeBSD 12-stable. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, uh, we'll know. Oh, did made a typo? Yeah, yeah
1: stable. <laughs> um, anyway, it fixes a bunch of uh, the problems with the iflib drivers that were in the original 12.0, uh, and the AESNI module is loaded by default now. I, I would have thought that would have been the default in BSD writer project for a while, but anyway... Uh, they made some fixes to the FRR RC script, which is the, uh, the fast routing thing from Cisco, I think. Um, they've updated the DHCP 6 and x86 info packages, uh, as well as bird, xbgp, FRR, iperf, StrongSwan, uh, GraphPath, uh, monit, openvpm, and tmux. And they have a list of the other packages they include by default, um, basically, uh, BSD router project is meant to turn a FreeBSD server uh, or a server machine into something equivalent to like a Cisco router. So uh, it's it's not about doing NAT and stuff for your house like a PFSense. It's meant to actually run, you know, BGP or some other routing protocol uh, and route stuff. Mm-hmm. All the way the packets wherever they want to go. Yep. Uh, and it's a nice optimized um, version of FreeBSD specifically for that. And uh, they have it available for you to use now. Mm-hmm. I should talk to Olivier. Last I checked, I think they were still using NanoBSD, and maybe they should uh, start having ZFS-based images. hmm
0: Yeah, and uh, I see that there's 85 downloads already for AMD 64 mm-hmm. and five for i386 versions. So I guess 64-bit uh, is a thing uh, now. That's
1: then. a yes. That's the thing I should uh, point some people at. Yep.
0: Okay, uh, next item we have, conference time, EuroBSDCon. They put out their call for uh, talk proposals and tutorial proposals and uh, one of the organizers, Christoph Provost, mentioned that they actually would like to have people not submit their proposals on the last day. Yeah, um,
1: I have a graph from last year where we got a couple when we first opened it and then, you know, every couple (laughs) of days maybe we get one and then... The other one hundred proposals came in in like the last eight hours. <laughs> the big spike at the end, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't wait so to the to last w- minute. Please submit your proposal as early as possible.
0: Yeah, because the program committee needs to review them, and as early as they can review those, they can make a uh, an educated guess. Otherwise, they have to review all of them at the end, and that takes longer. And then, well, you we're don't gonna know. review
1: them all at the end again anyway. Of course. Uh, yeah, but. I will have read yours in more detail and give it more weight if you submit it sooner. See what we're talking also, about? Also, the people who don't wait to the last minute tend to spend more time preparing their presentation and don't leave that until the last minute. And yes. so they often have better presentations.
0: More talks, more quality, and more polishing. Yes. Um,
1: and we're, we're trying to maintain uh, our previous thing of accepting about half of the talks that get submitted. Uh, now, we only have so many slots, so if you submit lots, we might accept less, but we would love to have the widest uh, number of things to pick from, so please submit all of your ideas. It's perfectly fine to submit five different ideas and have us pick which one we want you to do. Mm-hmm.
0: And your BSDCon is also um, good at um, balancing the, uh, between the talks between the BSD projects, but if there's mm-hmm. no... Not many submissions from a certain BSD project, then there's not much balancing they can do. Yeah. Well, so,
1: not much we can do if, if the, uh, if nobody doesn't submit enough proposals then, or whatever.
0: Yeah. So, the talk proposals can be sent until Sunday, May 26th. Um, and they accept talks for uh, the main conference or the tutorials that are the two days before. And uh, tutorials and talks should be held in English. And, um, Yeah, the conference website has all the details.
1: Yes, presentations are expected to be 45 minutes and delivered in English. Uh, Half-day tutorials are meant to be about three hours and full days, five to six hours.
0: Yep, and the conference will be in Norway, Lillehammer, and they have already a couple of information how to get there on their website, so no excuse to not uh, check it out and submit something.
1: Uh, So please send your submission. All we need is a short and concise text description of about uh, 100 to 300 words, I think, uh, and a short speaker bio about yourself, uh, as well as if you're going to apply for travel funding, we need an estimate so that we can uh, make sure we don't go over budget. Mm -hmm. Um, If you need a visa, we need that request as early as possible, uh, ideally much before the call for paper deadline, uh, because that can take quite a while to get sorted out. Uh, especially since EuroBSDCon moves to a new country every year. So it's a completely different country whose customs things we're trying to deal with to get somebody a visa. Yeah.
0: And I think they also have the um, Paul Schenkevel Travel Grant again. But mm-hmm. people uh, can... But
1: yes, um, I know last year, uh, the person who was going to be awarded that couldn't end up getting a visa and so it went unawarded because Mm. of that. So please apply, especially if you need help with your travel, uh, then please apply as early as possible.
0: And if you're a company, then they are still looking for sponsors and Mm -hmm. you you can have various sponsoring options and they list what kind of benefits you would get as a sponsor. So please consider sponsoring the conference and get your name into the... uh, the venue and on the uh, the opening and closing so that people know that you're sponsoring a BSD conference. Okay, uh, next up we have a Funix shirt, Unix shirt here over at uh, reddit.com in the Unix section. And yeah, uh, pipes all the way. <laughs> you can see on the right there's the the original art and on the left there's the t-shirt version And the Unix folks would probably uh, Uh, appreciate the the pipe version more. In both, in in French, it
1: says, this is not a pipe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I'm not sure um, whether that shirt is available, but I guess it's easy to uh, replicate. Okay, uh, and next up, we have a 51NB ThinkPad X210. This
1: is... um, an older model, I think. It's that such a yeah, new it's, one? Is so it? it's yeah. the Sandy Bridge. Or no, Version. the one generation before Sandy Bridge. I forget what that was actually called. Um, but yeah, it's the predecessor to the X220. Um, so they say, a couple years ago, I used an old ThinkPad while my Mac was being repaired, uh, but I enjoyed the experience so much that I ended up getting uh, a ThinkPad X62, uh, which is basically an X61 chassis with modern internals. Last September, the makers of the... X-62 announced that a third batch of X-210s would be made. Um, ordered one and received it in January. And uh, It says, China has a bunch of laws uh, that make it hard to move money across borders, so payment involved wiring $1,200 to someone's personal account in China, uh, then emailing a QQ address. And It is rather a harrowing experience, but they have their new x 210 So like the X62, the X210 uh, is made by this company called 51NB, uh, which is a group of enthusiasts in uh, Shenzhen in China. So uh, an X210 is actually an X201, uh, so a ThinkPad X201, where the CPU has been upgraded to a Core i7-8550U, so that's very new, um, has two DDR4 slots, so you can take up to 32 gigs of RAM, has two mini PCI Express slots. Uh, One is uh, occupied by your wireless and Bluetooth card. The other is empty, Uh, it can be used for LTE, a second wireless card, or for a, if you can get a small enough, uh, NVMe. Then there's an M2 NVMe slot. Uh, In this case, he had two terabyte SSD installed in it. It also has a 2.5 inch SATA bay, uh, currently empty, but could hold a second SSD. Uh, They upgraded the screen to a 12.6 inch 2880 by 1920 screen, which is very, uh, that's, you know, nice high resolution, Mm. basically a 2K screen. Uh, The bezel is cut to make room for the three by two aspect ratio. uh, And so there is no webcam. It has mini display port and VGA out. So I'm guessing that means it doesn't have HDMI, which is uh, a little disappointing, but mini display port to DVI adapters are common. So, no problem. Has three uh, USB 3.1 ports, uh, but no USB C, uh, an SD card reader, gigabit Ethernet, a uh, physical switch to toggle the Wi Fi off, headphone and microphone jacks, and an internal microphone and speakers. Okay. Uh, so, the X210 is sold as either a motherboard you can install in your own chassis or as a barebone laptop where you can bring your own RAM, SSD, and battery. Uh, uh, the battery would probably be the biggest thing there. Although uh, Lenovo might still sell uh, replacement batteries, mm-hmm.
0: and then they talk about their impressions. I mean, uh, in this one they're they're using Linux, but I guess the BSD experience would be similar. Uh, mm-hmm. They talk a bit about uh, battery life that would increase by fifty percent if they got PC uh, six or seven uh, or PC six or PC eight idle states. But in the update later, they managed to get PC seven idle by upgrading the kernel. And uh, the fan would only turn on if uh, he would do something intensive like compiling Go or scrolling in Slack. So, yeah, welcome Slack, again, eating batteries. And um, the conclusion there is, uh, after the caveat sections, um, uh, love that they love this, this laptop. It addresses almost all of the issues they had with the X62. Better screen, better performance, better microphone quality, and uh, they hope that the 51NB continues to build new internals for the old chassis because they doubt the major laptop manufacturers will get their heads out of their beep <clears throat> behinds at their time, at any time soon.
1: All right. Uh, so they list a couple of caveats, uh, one that I wouldn't have guessed. Uh, so the, the X210 isn't perfect. It's made by a group of enthusiasts, not a big company. Um, um. So, for example, like the X62, the mini DisplayPort cannot output in HDMI alternate mode. So it means a mini DisplayPort to HDMI dongle won't work. Uh, I guess you'd need at least an active dongle, which I don't know if they make those. Um, he says, also sometimes notices the PWM flicker on the screen. This only happens at the lowest brightness in a dark room when the display is mostly black. Um, I can see after images when my eyes saccade. Uh... Similar to uh, some brake lights in the night, and so on, um, it's about as noticeable as the PWM flicker on an iPhone X. So maybe not that big a deal. Uh, if the motherboard breaks, you can't walk into a store and get it replaced or repaired. Your only recourse is to email the manufacturer and ship it back to China. I've only read about one case of this happening, and in that case, the motherboard was dead on arrival. The unfortunate user was shipped a new one uh, within a few weeks.
0: Okay. So at least there's Sounds hope if cool. something breaks that, yeah, you can still get something back. Uh, so yeah, um, that's an interesting user experience. And If you yeah, like an has... older style keyboard, uh,
1: it's pretty interesting alternative to buying something like an X270 or X280. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to when they offer these kits for X220s, so they have three of those. <laughs> and I would, I would totally just buy a new motherboard for it. Although the other biggest disadvantage is I've I, uh, to an x220 as i would like a higher resolution screen probably
0: yeah at that time that's 4k would be better
1: i i wish they offered a 2k screen option for my uh x270 but at the same time i'm blind so i have a 4k screen but i'm using it at like 1.5x resolution or uh, magnification so
0: Okay, (laughs) let's leave it at that Uh, and go to our next item here, uh, which is a short message from Dragonfly BSD that they are no more uh, dependent on GCC 5.0, because GCC 5.0 is no longer needed in Dragonfly, so it's not being built anymore and can be removed on your next make upgrade, and as a bonus, build world is a little faster.
1: Okay, great. Does that mean they've moved on to newer GCCs or what? I don't know. Or to to Clang and... Cheap, uh, yeah. uh, I don't know if they're using Clang. I don't actually follow them very closely. Mm. Anyway, so we have uh Michael Lucas noting that uh the FreeBC Master Jails ebook is now escaping. Uh, after far too long, the book for FreeBC Mastery Jails is out. Not all stores have it yet. Uh I think all of them do by now, actually. This post is uh, a couple of days old. It's put a week old. Um mm. So he has but paperback the proof. Paperback and hardback ones are coming. Uh, they should be uh, Amazon within a few days and a few other stores once uh, Ingram Spark completes their approval process. Uh, I think I've actually seen tweets uh, yesterday of people getting theirs in the mail. So I think those are out now as well. We'll have mm-hmm. uh, an interview with more details about the book very soon.
0: Yeah, stay tuned for that. And yeah, congratulations, Michael, on yet another great uh BSD book. And the next one is a German talk that I got um, informed about. So this is um, at the There's um, the s- city of Augsburg has a Linux info day. And uh, one of the FreeBSD or the BSD enthusiasts who are also going to the Chaos Communication Congress um, between the years um, gives a lecture about FreeBSD and uh, some of its derivatives or some other variations of it. And um, basically an introductory talk, and um, that's probably, I'm not sure if it's recorded, Uh, it doesn't say here, but it's basically a free BSD talk in a mostly um, Linux-centric conference, and I think that's a good sign, because we need more um, things like these, so that people know that there's not only Linux out there, but also other BSDs. Mm -hmm. Okay, that pretty much wraps up our uh, bit section and we are jumping right into the feedback and questions section. Uh, we got a couple of feedback already, uh, but we could always use more. So if you have questions about the show, anything that you came up with or anything that you would like us to answer, if something comes up in your daily computing needs, then send this to feedback at bstnow.tv and we'll have something for future episodes. The first one this week is a DJ
1: about Fugulta feedback. Okay, so I here goes. fuguita.
0: Fugu Ita. Ita. Ah, yes.
1: Ah, it looks like an L in the. As in, so Fugu as in the. Uh, the fugu, yeah, the fish. Puffer fish. And mm. Ita, you said as an owl?
0: Could be. I don't know. So, yeah. Let's read. Uh, about Fuguita. I may have mentioned this in the chat room during an episode two, two, three weeks ago, following an undeadly post about OpenBSD on the Acer Aspire 1. Fuguita is a great live boot project and works amazingly even on old hardware, although the usual Wi Fi firmware issues with OpenBSD can make it difficult as a live CD or a USB OS. Well, well not OpenBSD. As
1: a USB, you could load the firmware for all the Wi Fi's as well, like install the packages or whatever. But yes, Mm. uh, the problem with not shipping the firmware as part of the OS, I understand why you don't want binary blobs, but it means that you don't have the firmware for the Wi-Fi.
0: Yeah, so to bring up there might be a bit more involved. So while not OpenBSD, something else uh, he found, uh, he found found that works even better on the legacy i36 netbook that uh, he has, NetBSD, uh, gypped. Unfortunately, it seems to be defunct for a few years. While it is now badly outdated, depending on your use case, it can still be useful now. I got a comfortable setup going with X and some modern graphics browsers in about 2 gigabytes of RAM. Wi-Fi just works, and it has amazing battery life and monitoring tools. Live distros of various BSD flavors make it easy to see what neat features the various other projects have without having to commit hardware to running them all.
1: Yeah, um, and if you have... Really old hardware, sometimes an old distro is actually the best way to get it up and going at first. Um, These type of live things are also super useful uh, for, say, going to a computer store uh, where they have a bunch of models on display. You can power cycle them and boot BSD and see if the Wi-Fi is detected and if the NVMe works properly and so on. Uh, And you can actually, you know, try before you buy, basically, and make sure you get one uh, where everything just works. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's try to suspend it. and resume and see what happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the ultimate test, I guess, if you want to really use this as your main BSD machine. Yep. So yeah, thanks for the feedback uh, on the Fuguita. And the next one is Mike about um, providing feedback about the show it, itself. Uh, Mike writes, thanks for taking the time and effort to produce these. That's not just going uh, to Alan and me, but also to... JT for doing all this Ah, yes all the people behind the scenes that are not in front of the camera but behind it and make as much uh, the show a success as uh, the people in front of it I guess and some goats uh, that are visiting Um, so I'm another long-time FreeBSD on the desktop um, at home where I have a choice since at least the 3.3 days oh wow that's even before my time Uh, it's all about the applications what are you doing what do you need I like class Mail instead of Thunderbird, a little lighter on the resources. Alan, mm-hmm. so when's the next book with Michael Lucas? The ZFS ones are fantastic, especially the footnotes.
1: Uh, so, well, Michael Lucas's next book was uh previous Master Jails that came out this week. Uh, and we'll be talking to him about that soon. Uh, maybe we should ask this question to him uh, uh, when we interview him. Yes. Uh, but... Um, there are currently no plans for Michael and I to collaborate again. Uh, we, 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 It was fun, but uh, I definitely ruined his workflow. And uh, that's <laughs> maybe not the greatest idea. You parted on uh, good terms? You yes. Uh, you yes. each other? So it's very close. <laughs> uh, and yeah, at some point, maybe we will have to do uh, even just an updated edition. There's just so much new stuff that's happened. Uh We'd have to sprinkle that across the two books and make revised editions or something. I don't know. Mm.
0: Um, I mean, um, Alan will definitely provide there. input
1: for a mm-hmm. new book.
0: Uh,
1: but at the same time, uh, I don't know when I would have time to work on a book this year. Yes, maybe it's, next
0: it's year. a big, it's a big project. I mean, Michael is a full-time writer now, and he has much more time to dedicate to a book and coming up with pages after pages of text. And it's
1: yes, uh, but that only works because he can do it when it works for him. And having to work with me would throw <laughs> all that into chaos.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Co authorship is different. You know, I have ideas a for
1: a different book, uh, but I gain no, no time to write anything.
0: Mm, probably the ghostwriter or something. <laughs> <It> <laughs> or someone with you the can. a technical thing. Uh, but, yes. but yeah, you occasionally write for the Free Journal still, Mm -hmm. some articles here and there.
1: 3,000 words is a lot different than 30,000 words.
0: Right, but still you could say uh, it's a little book um, for the occasional update here and there. So yeah, Mike, thanks for the update. And um, yeah, glad you're enjoying the show. And yeah, keep running FreeBSD or any other BSD. And yeah, we'll provide you with the weekly news for, for the BSDs. Uh, Last but not least this week is Alex with GhostBSD and Wi-Fi question. Uh, Goes like this. Hello, I just installed GhostBSD 18.12. Oh, perfect Uh, fitting to our episode this week on an HP DVT-4 laptop and everything seemed to go fine with the install. The problem is that I can connect to the internet via Ethernet, but I'm not getting any access to on Wi-Fi. I can click on the top right of the screen and select Enable Wireless from the drop-down menu, but nothing seems to happen. I opened up the laptop and see that it has a Broadcom 4312 wireless mini PCIe card with the model number and uh, the support 802.11b and g. Uh, He ran Package Update and Package Upgrade to make sure the OS is up to date. What's the best way to troubleshoot this issue?
1: Um, I don't know if that's one of the Broadcoms that's actually supported on BSD. The man page should list the supported drivers or the variations. Well, cuz the Broadcom driver in question is a is a port, like it's a package you install.
0: Oh, right, yeah. And, and I don't know, getting...
1: I don't know if that Broadcom one actually supports the one he has. Um, yeah, Broadcom Wi-Fi can be unfun on on FreeBSD. Um, one option is you can get uh, an Intel 60 205 Wi-Fi off eBay for ten or fifteen dollars, and just swap out the the mini PCIe card in your laptop, and then you'll have BSD supported Wi-Fi.
0: Or uh, you go back, or you to, can get a
1: USB dongle, but that's unfun.
0: Yeah, or you contact the maintainer of that port and ask um, if he knows about this version, or if you uh, if you can test and you can help making that specific version. Right. Well, without work.
1: docs, I don't know that we can. Um, yeah. Uh, Do quick search. I see other people asking questions about this.
0: Huh? So you're not alone in this. So that's a bigger chance that something will uh, happen in this way. If it's a very exotic version, then it's um, unlikely. Yeah, so
1: apparently, there's a driver called BWN, uh, and you have to load that kernel module and its firmware. And yes, it does specifically support the the 43.12, which is in the HP uh, cards. Um, so yeah, if you Google for Broadcom 43.12 FreeBSD, there's a FreeBSD forum post, and it lists the lines in particular. You need the if underscore BWN underscore load equals yes, but you also need the firmware, which is apparently BWN underscore V4, Underscore LP underscore u code underscore load equals yes. Um, so there's a, a package for the... Ah, it's the firmware that's not built into FreeBSD and has a package. So it can be updated mm. more frequently than the base operating system.
0: Okay. So that seems like a solution without yes, buying new like hardware. Set firmware underscore load equals yes
1: as well. Uh, but yes, there are some posts here. I guess that laptop may be not as new as I was assuming it was. Ah, I see that it's BG, so that's why it works. Mm. Uh, but yes, if you uh, search for that uh, in FreeBSD, you will find uh, a bunch of stuff. I found, including a blog post by Landon Fuller, who I think is the one that wrote some of the the BHND driver stuff.
0: Ah, okay. So yeah, that seems like uh, it's seems it's it's going to work, or it just needs a little bit more uh setting up to load the driver
1: yeah well it's so yeah you need to load the driver but you also need the firmware which is the slightly stickier bit but uh Mm. it looks like it shouldn't be that big of a problem yes uh it has check marks in all the boxes in this little table here under freebsd that That, uh, the 4212 is supported by both the bwn and bhnd drivers
0: Okay, that sounds promising. So this might be uh, the last bits that I needed to get it running. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't matter too much if it's GhostBSD or FreeBSD itself.
1: But yes, if you do get it going, uh, write down the steps and send them back and we'll make sure they go somewhere where people can find them. So the next person doesn't have to do quite as much work as you did.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah, so thanks for that question. And uh, that pretty much wraps up our episode for this week. Uh, thanks for watching. And again, if you have anything for us, then send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll have future episodes to fill.